0: Welcome to Greystone Conversations, the podcast of Greystone Theological Institute. We invite you to join us as we explore brief scripture and theology studies, share interviews, discuss texts old and new, and listen in on Greystone special lecture events and selections from full Greystone course modules. We're delighted that you're with us today. Thank you for your support of Greystone Theological Institute, and once again, welcome. Is
1: the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son of God evidence of the Church's departure from the simplicity and straightforwardness of the Scriptures? Does it confirm a penchant for arid, confusing, and unhelpful metaphysical and speculative argument? Can we speak of the doctrine of eternal generation as truly biblical, and even if we may, Does it matter much to the Church's faith and life? Good day to you. I'm Mark Garcia, President and Fellow in Scripture and Theology at Greystone Theological Institute, and I'm delighted to welcome you today to episode number 40 of Greystone Conversations. In 2004, Paul L. Gavrlyuk published a book with Oxford University Press, exploring one of the most frequently misunderstood and maligned of classical church doctrines, the impassibility of God. In his work, titled The Suffering of the Impassible God, The Dialectics of Patristic Thought, Gavriuk recalls his readers to the impassibility doctrine of history, not of myth, and along the way reminds us how Christian theology works, and as a result... What it is. The doctrine of divine impassibility was not articulated and defended as a way of resolving apparently contradictory truths, namely, that God is unchanging, and yet that God the Son suffered. No, divine impassibility was articulated to reject efforts at such resolution. Recognizing the inherently paradoxical nature of Christian theological claims, and refusing the temptation to dissolve all mysteries by proposing an exhaustively explanatory formulation, divine impassibility affirms the truths we know from Scripture concerning God and speaks faithfully about those truths while rejecting unfaithful ways of speech and unfaithful ways especially of forcing a resolution of apparent tensions. In other words, Christian theology does not aim at fully explaining things that are beyond our understanding, the things that belong to the Lord, as Deuteronomy says. Christian theology is an exercise in speaking receptively and humbly in order to speak faithfully of the God who has revealed himself truly and clearly Allowing that speech of God to be properly ordered by its relation to other truths, as well as with a view to things we reject. And that speech is especially ordered by God's revelation of himself in his gospel. Years ago, one theologian, Christopher Morse, wrote a whole systematic theology by negation in this way, summarizing the Christian faith by explaining things that we reject. And he called the result, a Christian dogmatics of disbelief. Well, what is true of divine impassibility holds for other doctrines as well, including the doctrine of the eternal generation of the Son, our topic for today's conversation. Like divine impassibility, the doctrine of eternal generation has fallen on hard times. In recent decades, a significant portion of avowed evangelical Christians including some Reformed Christians, have assumed that this doctrine is evidence of the defiling influence of ancient Greek philosophy, that infamous and still influential Harnack thesis, or evidence of the Church's departure from the simple Christian faith of the Bible and the teaching of Jesus, or worse. In the first edition of his extraordinarily popular and widely used systematic theology, Wayne Grudem included an appendix rejecting this doctrine, and others went on the record with their own expressions of hesitation or outright criticism of this teaching. But in 2016, Dr. Grudem stood before the entire Evangelical Theological Society and with commendable humility retracted his earlier rejection of eternal generation, explaining that he had now come to see that the doctrine is biblical after all a change of heart and mind that is reflected in the second edition of his Systematic Theology, just recently published. Among the scholars who helped change Wayne Grudem's mind on eternal generation was Dr. Charles Lee Irons, who had written on the Greek term found in the Johannine literature of the New Testament, monogenes, defending the older translation of this word as only begotten over against common recent renderings in modern translations as only or one and only. Dr. Irons has been working on eternal generation as a biblical doctrine for quite some time and is currently working on a book on it as well. He's also teaching an online micro course for Greystone on this very topic, a series that meets weekly for two hours over six weeks time, to explore the scriptural, historical, and theological significance of the doctrine of eternal generation. And this series starts very soon, on Wednesday, the 14th of April, and you're warmly encouraged to sign up today after you listen to the conversation with Dr. Irons about this topic. I did sit down to speak with Dr. Irons about the doctrine of the eternal generation about his earlier work on the exegetical basis for the doctrine, and also discussed our shared hope that Dr. Grudem and others might not only fully recover the doctrine of eternal generation, but also, perhaps even for that very reason, come to reject another related aberration in evangelical theology in our day, and that is the notion of the eternal subordination of the Son of God. If you find that you're interested in the following conversation with Dr. Irons, do consider signing up for that online Greystone micro course on this subject by visiting greystoneinstitute.org and clicking on the modules and events button on our homepage. Greystone members enjoy a discounted registration rate for this and several other coming micro course series And for this spring only, Greystone Institutional or group members can participate at no cost at all, so do check it out. Thank you once again for spending some time with us today to reflect together on the shape and direction of greater faithfulness to our Triune God, and now a conversation with Dr. Charles Lee Irons on the eternal generation of the Son of God, which is episode number 40 of Greystone Conversations. Well thank you Dr Irons for joining us today on Grayson Conversations. We're very very pleased to uh, to have you in this conversation but also of course to look forward to the micro course you are going to lead for us very shortly in fact a little later just this month on the topic of eternal generation and I'm particularly excited by the combination the methodological commitment that is reflected in the title we've we've settled on, and that's eternal generation in Scripture and theology, since it's not uncommon for this doctrine to be treated as though it is only a matter of theological reflection and not something, in fact, related to the Scriptures of the Old and New Testament. So I'm very, very much looking forward to
2: that and glad to have you on today. Welcome. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that micro course as well. It's going to be a great opportunity to really delve into a long-neglected doctrine and to try to understand it not only in terms of the history of theology and the creedal basis of it, but to understand the exegetical and biblical theological basis for eternal generation. Excellent.
1: My encounter with your work on this particular question goes back some years, as I've over the years seen blog posts, I have seen journal articles here and there. I know you gave a paper at least on one occasion uh, Mm -hmm. related to the topic. Uh, More recently, generally speaking, I have strongly recommended to to many others an essay that you have uh, included in a book edited by Fred Sanders and Scott Swain, a book called Retrieving Eternal Generation, published, I think it was in 2017 or so. Yes, that's right. And in this in this volume your essay is called a lexical defense of the johannine only begotten the monogamous term and that's something i have found just so helpful it's a it's a fairly brief treatment of a complex rich question an an important question and i would recommend it to all of our all of our listeners as well in fact i'm going to ask dr irons if it would be okay for us to include in the program notes for this episode a number of places you have written on the topic that you might help us identify uh, for our readers to access them online wherever that's possible. But can I ask you, how did you get into this particular topic of
2: eternal generation? You know, it's always been something that I've been aware of. I remember back as far as my seminary days in the 90s, Being a little bit surprised that some of my professors didn't really believe in eternal generation or had questions about it and i always thought that was kind of puzzling because i saw the doctrine is so clearly affirmed in the nicene creed itself
1: Mm.
2: you know we believe in jesus christ the only begotten son of god begotten of the father before all worlds begotten not made it's right there in the nicene creed and it just it's a pretty,
1: pretty important text for the church yeah. as well, the
2: Nicene Creed. Yes. Yeah, I couldn't. I mean, obviously, the Nicene Creed is not our ultimate authority. Scripture is. But mm. how can we just so easily dismiss that and just say, well, it's, that just must be some uh, patristic metaphysical thing that we don't really believe in anymore? I, that just kind of boggled my mind. So I mm. remember uh, writing a paper on it in seminary that kind of got me started in doing research on only begotten, on the word itself and then later on in 2014 i wrote my first paper that became the basis of the article that you mentioned Mm -hmm. in the retrieving eternal generation book and fred sanders was in the audience at ets and heard that paper and said hey we're looking for a contribution we're doing this book with scott swain on on eternal generation we're looking for a chapter on only begotten would you be willing to throw your chapter in there so i said fine and That's how things got going from that point on. Excellent. Excellent. Now,
1: we might be getting ahead of ourselves a little bit uh, in that I didn't ask you what we mean by that language anyway. You did note note the particular term, monogonese, only begotten, but that's, of course, a disputed translation, which accounts for a lot of your work on this. It is a Johannine term. Uh, within the New Testament. That's something that interests me anyway because of my strong interest in Johannine theology generally. But what do we mean, or what should we mean, by the language of the eternal generation of the Son? And if you don't mind, could you give us a snapshot of why we should believe this is true?
2: Yeah, so just that phrase, eternal generation, is a little bit misleading or confusing to some people both words, both eternal and generation. So let's take generation first. Generation is just the Latin equivalent of the word to beget. So it's often happens in theology where we turn all these words into fancy Latin words, <laughs> and it sounds so much more metaphysically grand or something than it really is. All it means is that the father eternally begets the son. And then the eternal part is also a little bit confusing because eternal has different understandings. Like, for example, we could say that, you know, traditionally in theology, we believe that angels and human souls are eternal. Mm. Although they're not really eternal in the sense that we mean it in this phrase, eternal generation, because angels and human souls are created. So that means that they had a point in time when they began and then they endure forever, maybe a better term for that is everlasting or Mm. But the term eternal in the phrase eternal generation really is getting at the idea that this generation of the sun is something that takes place outside of and beyond time. So maybe even a better term for it would be timeless, timeless generation. Hmm. That, that's a term that I find is helpful for people to, when they hear that, timeless generation. Then we're taking ourselves out of the realm of creation to the pre-incarnate Christ in his relationship with the father before creation before time and so now we're using a created metaphor the metaphor of a father begetting a son but we're using it to try to get our minds around something that goes beyond creation and time and so unlike human sons who have a point in time when they begin and there's also a chronological disparity where the father exists but the son doesn't exist and then the son is begotten and then he begins to exist All of those time chronological sequential ideas are totally erased because now we're elevating this metaphor to the timeless arena where there was never a time when the sun did not exist. Mm -hmm. In fact, the first Nicene Creed, Nicaea 1 in 325, has a bunch of anathemas and one of the Arian statements that they attack is before he was begotten, he did not exist. Mm -hmm. That's what the Arians taught. And the church fathers saying, no, we don't believe that. We don't believe that before he was begotten, he did not exist. He is eternally begotten. Or another way of putting it is the phrase in the Nicene Creed, begotten not made. Adding that phrase not made automatically qualifies begotten, so that we understand it now in a non-creative type of sense, in a way that transcends time right. and therefore refers to an eternal. Generation, that is a timeless generation that has no beginning and no end. And why is this doctrine important? It's crucial for our doctrine of the Trinity. It doesn't solve all the problems, it doesn't eliminate the mystery. But the doctrine of eternal generation, together with the doctrine of the eternal procession of the Spirit, which is another important doctrine that needs to be brought into connection with eternal generation, but mm-hmm. both of these doctrines help us to understand how two things can both be true. On the one hand, we believe that God is one and that one divine essence is absolutely simple and undivided and not composed of parts. And yet on the other hand, we also believe there are three persons within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And those three persons are not components of the Trinity. They're not parts like three slices of the pie. Mm -hmm. The three persons of the Trinity are one God. And so the doctrine of eternal generation, as well as the procession of the spirit, help us to grasp how those can both be true in some way. Hmm. In, in my chapter in uh, Retrieving Eternal Generation, I have a quote from Dabney. And Dabney puts it like this. He says, if these are both true, both the unity of God and the three persons, there must be some way in which the Godhead multiplies its personal modes of subsistence without multiplying its essence. Mm-hmm. And that is how the doctrine of the, of the eternal generation and procession helps us to connect those two things together. So, for example, in the, in the uh, Westminster Confession, when they talk about the doctrine of the Trinity, they basically say that the Father is the one who begets, the Son is the one who is eternally begotten, and the Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. And those are the only three personal distinctions that Scripture allows us to make. The father begets, the son is begotten, and the spirit proceeds. Sometimes the church fathers will change that first one to the father is unbegotten. Mm. But that's kind of the same thing as saying that he's the one that begets. Yes. Mm. So there is a, an order or a taxis in the Trinity, but yet there's no hierarchy. There's no subordination. There's no ontological gradation. Even though that's actually one of the things that people have a hard time with. They think, but doesn't the eternal generation kind of imply some sort of ontological gradation or some kind of like, you have the father here and then the son is kind of flowing down the next level, like some sort of neoplatonist idea of emanations or something. No, that's not at all what we're saying. In Mm. fact, it's just the opposite. Mm. The doctrine of eternal generation is saying that the father begets the son eternally in a timeless way, in such a manner that the son is in possession of the full divine essence without any diminution or, partition or only taking a a fraction of the deity or something like that, but he is ontologically of the same essence as the Father. And what I think is quite
1: important in all of this is to notice that the Church's articulation of the identity of the Son in relationship to eternal generation and that that vocabulary, that language, is not a, a result, as I sometimes describe it, of a bunch of old men with long beards sitting around a beautiful oak table and deciding in all their spare time (laughs) they should come up with some new doctrine uh, for the church to to argue about, but that there is a pressure exerted by the scriptures themselves for us to use such language in identifying the Son. I want to talk about that in, in a few moments the place of the scriptures in our understanding and and use of this language. I know that the pressure is exerted not only by the Johannine vocabulary, Mm -hmm. but by patristic and continuing church reflection on Proverbs 8, on a a range of other passages where it's because we are recognizing the pressure exerted by the Spirit speaking through the word that we, we use such language at all. But given that the as you were noting in terms of the Westminster Confession and the Church's tradition generally, given that this is what we mean by the Trinity, and this is what we mean by the distinctions among the the persons of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there is the unbegotten one who begets, there is the begotten, and that there is the one who proceeds, and that there is not any other way, really, in orthodox terms, to distinguish the persons meaningfully, when you deny eternal generation, how then do you distinguish the persons? Which I guess is a different way of saying Mm -hmm. my bigger question would be, how did we get here? How did we get to the place as the church? Or something that is articulated in the Nicene Creed of all things, which was later identified as a point of our orthodoxy, in such a way that to deny it was called heresy, and anathemas were attached to those who would deny eternal generation. And when we are suggesting that we haven't yet discussed it, that there is a biblical pressure to use such language as we're using here. How did we get to the place as a church where it's not only maybe our brethren in the pews who are stumbling over the language of generation itself? Mm -hmm begottenness and are wrestling with how this sounds like earthly created language of a time bound beginning and end coming into being and maybe not appreciating the pairing that's there in the Nicene Creed itself that already automatically nuances and clarifies and qualifies this. But we're also talking about pretty well-established names in Mm -hmm. evangelicalism, the Christian tradition generally. We're talking about, in some cases, some rather sophisticated treatments of the question that end up questioning the idea and sometimes outright rejecting it, both within the Reformed tradition as well as outside, more generally, in evangelicalism. How did
2: we get here? How did we get to such a place in your estimation? There's a number of different factors Probably one of the biggest ones, in my view, is the translation problem of, you know, in John 1, verses 14 and 18, traditionally, those verses have used, in the King James, for example, the word only begotten. And only begotten is based on that Greek word, monogenes. And there have been, going back to the late 19th century, and then into the 20th century, there have been many scholars who have said that that, word should not be translated only begotten but should be translated as only or one and only or unique and there's a whole bunch of arguments on that all kinds of lexical issues etymological issues but the bottom line is that most of the english translations beginning with the rsv which the new testament came out in 1946 beginning with the RSV and then continuing on with the NIV and et cetera, most of the modern English translations have dropped only begotten and changed it to only or one and only. And that has created a disjunction between the scriptures and our creedal tradition. So in the English translations of the Nicene Creed, it still says only begotten, Mm. but our English versions don't say only begotten. And so there's this, state of being out of sync our Mm. our english bibles are out of sync with the nicene creed and then together with that so here's another factor which is a general trend towards neglecting the concept that god providentially guided the church in those first four centuries to understand scripture and therefore a neglect of the creed itself and thinking that the creed is not relevant for exegesis and that we're free to just disregard it and say well okay you know maybe those fourth century guys had some harebrained Mm. ideas about eternal generation but we don't need to believe that if we don't see it in the text so one factor is just the change in translation the other factor is a general distrust or neglect of the creed and then another factor is an overall trend with the enlightenment shifting things to a more historical perspective and therefore downplaying concerns for metaphysics and ontology. And so there's this general trend of looking at the concept of Christ's sonship in purely historical terms. There is basis for that, right? Because, for example, you know, Psalm two seven, you are my son, today I've begotten you. You can make a case that that does have an ontological significance going back to eternity, but there are also passages in the New Testament that apply it to the historical level, to the resurrection and ascension of Christ. For example, in Acts 13... In Paul's sermon at the synagogue of Antioch of Pisidia, he applies Psalm 2-7 to the resurrection of Christ. And so it kind of fits in with this idea of the historical coronation of the Davidic king and so on. But because of this general trend with the Enlightenment, shifting things away from metaphysics to history, and also even worse than that, there's also been this collapsing of history and eternity as well, where, like with Bart, where you have this idea that the incarnate Christ is eternal in some way, and the denying of the Logos Osarkos, that is the in pre-incarnate Christ before his incarnation, and then collapsing eternity with history or with time, and saying that God is in time in some way. So these general trends have also had a big impact. And even among evangelicals who may not agree with all of that strange Bardian theology, there's still kind of this general feeling that we need to be more historical in our exegesis and focus on things like, the sonship of Christ in terms of the Davidic coronation and things like that, rather than asking ourselves, but does the text itself take us beyond that historical level to something greater? And I think it does in all the key passages that affirm eternal generation, which is John one, Colossians one, and Hebrews one, in all three of those, you have a clear affirmation that puts Christ in his pre-incarnate state prior to creation as the mediator of the creation event, so John one three, all things were made through him, and without him was nothing made that was made. Colossians one sixteen, by him all things were created, and Hebrews one two, through whom God created the worlds or the ages. Mm-hmm. And those three affirmations of Christ's role in creation, which actually go back to Proverbs eight, which you mentioned before, and that's why Proverbs eight is so important in this. Yes, Because in Proverbs 8, the figure of wisdom is there at creation, right? The Lord possessed yes. me at the beginning of his ways, as the first of his works, all these things. And so yes. that Proverbs 8 concept is in the peripheral vision of the New Testament writers mm-hmm. and had a big role in shaping these affirmations in John 1.3 and Colossians 1.16 and so on that put Christ on the creator side of the creator-creature distinction. So what's amazing, though, is that in those very contexts, you have some statement of Christ being the eternal son. You know, he's the word of God. He's the word that was begotten. He's in the bosom of the father. He is the firstborn of all creation. He is the image of the invisible God. he's the radiance of the glory of God. All these terms are different ways of conceptualizing Christ's sonship as the eternally begotten son and image and radiance of God. And all those affirmations are right there in that exact context where Christ is put at the point of creation. He's placed in the pre-incarnate state on the creator side of the creator creature distinction. So that then necessarily brings in metaphysics. You can't just do biblical exegesis and simply look at, well, we just want to talk about the historical context. We want to talk about the Davidic King and the history of redemption and how Christ, his sonship is manifested through his virgin birth and through his obedience and his resurrection and all these things, which is all true. Mm. But you can't leave it there. You can't just say that's all there is to the sonship of Christ. Because the text itself is pushing us into a metaphysic that goes back before creation. Indeed. And once you do that, you have this awesome ontology of the creator and the creature. And you're putting Christ up here with the creator mm-hmm. before time, before creation, before creation. And therefore, you're making him homoousios, of the same substance with the father. And by saying that, I think
1: you're very helpfully also distinguishing for us what it means to be biblicistic in the sense that since the Enlightenment, the church in the modern world has really struggled with an ironically low use of scripture uh, alongside what many evangelicals have as a high view of scripture, to use that distinction we've used before at Greystone, where there is a commitment to a criterion for meaning that is exhausted by what can be demonstrated to be in the author's mind only, only within certain grammatical, historical, contextual features, a kind of a version of historicism that is principially opposed to matters theological, metaphysical, philosophical, Mm -hmm. as having any bearing whatsoever, even on the way these... Biblical texts are ordered to one another. You're distinguishing that, which is not only a, a handicap, but a significantly destructive element in the church from what we should mean by what is biblical. And that's attending to how scripture works and that it requires not merely as an option, but requires that we think theologically about how the text is saying what it's saying and why uh-huh. and to what end and what faithful rearticulation of scriptural teaching would sound like, uh-huh. uh, which is so much of what the patristic concern was in yes. unpacking eternal generation. It was not to exhaustively explain the reality, which remains as all things are ultimately mysterious as they belong to God uniquely, the creator. And at the same time, faithfully speak of God on the basis of his revelation Mm -hmm. in ways that clearly reject unfaithful ways of speaking of him. And like many other doctrines, eternal generation doctrine is the result of learning many ways not to speak of the son and remain faithful to how the scriptures do speak of him, not, not pretending to have captured it all but wanting in humility to submit to how the scriptures do speak, how the spirit speaks yeah. the
2: scriptures of the Son. Yeah, absolutely. That's been one of the, the greatest discoveries for me in this whole process. So I've done a lot of work in, obviously, just that word monogenes and defending the traditional translation. But aside from that, I've also done a lot of work in the 4th century church fathers, especially the Greek fathers, Athanasius, oh, Basel, Gregory of Nazianz and Gregory of Nyssa and so on. And what's been really great about that is to see how they are doing exegesis and mm. right? how they're doing theological exegesis and how they're interpreting the text and what they're seeing in the text. And it's not what everybody thinks. It probably goes back to Harnack in his idea of the Hellenization of the church and how he, he argued that, you know, somewhere in the second or third century, the church got infected with Hellenistic thought and, turned everything into this Platonistic philosophical and got lost the biblical historical foundation of everything. But people had this idea that if you were to read Athanasius, for example, just just go and read his first treatise against the Arians. Just mm-hmm. one simple treatise. It's not that long, less than fifty pages, you can get through it. And you might think you're going to see all kinds of flamboyant Neoplatonist philosophy and emanations and ontological this and that. It's not that at all. It's just exegesis,
0: hmm.
2: verse by verse by verse by verse. Of course, he has to deal with the Arian exegesis, especially Proverbs 8, because hmm. in the Septuagint, it, it does use the word created. It says the word created me. And so the Arian's, ah, see, that shows that, that the sun is a creature. So even though there is a polemic there, it's not all this philosophical speculation and just reading metaphysics into the text and then reading it back out of the text. No, it's just patiently looking at the context, looking at the New Testament, how it quotes these Old Testament verses and so on, and patiently exegeting the text and trying to understand what it's saying. And then recognizing, as you said, there is mystery there. We're not trying to, the church houses, we not trying to say, ah, we have rationalistically solved all the problems and yes, now we right. can explain No, I mean, they often quoted Isaiah 53, 8, which I think technically is a misquotation because I don't think Isaiah 53, 8 is talking about eternal generation, but it says, who has declared his generation? And so they use that to say, this is a mystery. No one can fully plumb the depths of what this is. I mean, we're using limited human analogies to try to understand something about the infinite, eternal, impassable, utterly simple God. And Mm. our minds just absolutely break at trying to do that. So we're not trying to solve all the mystery and to bring it down to an earthly level, but we're trying to understand what does the scripture tell us? What is the scripture saying here?
1: And the Isaiah passage is a rhetorical question for a good reason. Yeah. There are things that a faithful theologian accounts for from the start. And that is uh, our goal here, success does not look like having explained it all, right. but faithfully articulating what is true, whether or not we grasp as much of it as we might wish. Right. And that's a very different understanding of the calling of faithful theological thinking than what might be assumed to be the case among those who have such grave concerns about things like eternal generation. Yeah, You're explaining, I think very helpfully, for all of the importance of the term monogonase. In Johannine literature, and it is quite important for obvious reasons, eternal generation is not a matter of theology by etymology or theology by lexicography, but that this language is used because it belongs to a bigger picture, a more general reality of the God we confess, Mm -hmm. and is an indispensable, because scriptural, part of a picture of how we might faithfully, how we should faithfully speak of mm-hmm. the ways in which the Son is not the Father, is not the Spirit, and the Father is not the Son and not the Spirit, and the Spirit's not the Father with the Son, and yeah. so on. That's a helpful, helpful reminder, I think. We were noting just a little bit ago that things have changed. We're in a situation where this question is being raised, this doctrine is being, at least there is some hesitancy over it in some corners, outright rejection of it in others And that this is happening not only kind of in wider liberal circles, but happening even within evangelical circles.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I know that within the Reformed tradition, there was, for good reason, some controversy years ago in connection with Robert Raymond's first edition of his oh, yeah. systematic yeah. theology, <laughs> in which he expressed at least uncertainty regarding this doctrine mm-hmm. in a way that yeah. I think rightly provoked a great deal of concern. And my understanding is that he did at some point uh, later on clarify uh, yeah. his position, at least to, to put it softly, that he is in, in fact in favor of eternal generation. But it's, it's happening in other contexts as well. Can yeah. you speak in some way about how this has looked?
2: Yeah, so another factor here that we have to, to mention is just this whole debate over eternal functional subordination. Yes, indeed. Mm-hmm. And Dr. Wayne Grudem has also gone through a little bit of, similar to Robert Raymond, a little bit of a shift in clarifying some things. He actually, to his credit, very honestly and publicly at the Evangelical Theological Society in 2016, stood before the whole society and said, I was wrong in my systematic theology to come out so strongly critical of eternal generation and I was thankful that he even credited some of my work in helping him to to shift his thinking a bit on that. And his systematic theology was among the most widely used
1: uh, and circulated systematic theologies for many years in evangelical circles, a textbook in many, many different institutions. Right. Mm.
2: And he also stated back in 2016 that he was working on a revision, Mm. which he did, and it was published last year. And the revision was very clear in 100% affirming eternal generation and retracting his original critique of it, which was partly based on the fact that he didn't think there was a sufficient exegetical basis for it. And so my work on Only Begotten has helped him to find more exegetical support for it. The only problem is, is that he still is affirming his other doctrine of eternal functional subordination,
1: Yes, indeed. And that is a problem.
2: <laughs> yeah, he hasn't, for some reason, doesn't see the logical entailment of eternal generation, which is if you if you really believe in eternal generation and you believe this concept that the only personal distinctions that the Bible allows us to make between the three persons is that the Father is the begetter, the Son is the begotten, and the Spirit is the one that proceeds.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Those are the only three Personal distinctions that we're allowed to make in order to preserve the unity and simplicity of the divine essence, while at the same time affirming three persons within that one essence, then logically, it doesn't leave room for any other kinds of distinctions. Now, if Dr. Grudem simply wanted to focus on the incarnation and talk about, you know, how Augustine does in the form of a servant, you know, he makes he uses that phrase from Philippians two, form of God, form of a servant, as sort of a hermeneutic. To say, anytime you see anything in the scriptures that seems to imply subordination or obedience, that's Christ in the form of a servant and refers to his incarnate state, not Christ in the form of God referring to his pre-incarnate relationship with the Father. If Dr. Grudem had done that and say, look, I'm just talking about not eternal functional subordination, but the proper role of Christ as the incarnate Son— submitting to the will of the father and going to the cross in obedience to so an economic to consideration that would have been fine economic right. subordination is fine but taking it into eternity into eternity past then creates this problem where now you have a double explanation for what is the son's role is it eternal generation or is it eternal functional subordination you can't really have both there's not enough room in in Trinity town for both of us, right? Yes, and, and so, it's, a, it's a curiosity as
1: yeah. well. I think at least a curiosity in that some of the theological objections raised by critics of Eternal Generation, some of the theological objections raised against that doctrine, that classic Orthodox doctrine, is that it suggests a kind of asymmetry in the equality of the persons of the Godhead. yeah, Language of generations is language of asymmetry, which suggests ontological inequities of some sort. And that's wrong. It's mistaken as an objection. And yet if that's the concern, as we were saying earlier, how much more is this the case mm-hmm. in a concept of eternal functional subordination right. of the son to the father? And then alongside that, the defense or explanation of eternal functional subordination, a commendation of that idea, in fact, depends upon the concept of filiation. It depends upon eternal generation to be meaningful in the first place. Mm -hmm. It has to be that the son is eternally functionally subordinate to the father because the son is a son to his father. And this is what sonship is by definition, this being the conventional defense or explanation for eternal mm-hmm. functional subordination. It depends, in other words, on a doctrine it rejects uh, among those who deny eternal generation but affirm eternal mm-hmm. functional subordination. Um, yeah. And I think it's, it's a signal to us yet again of the rich tapestry of the unity of the Christian faith yeah. and Tugging on a on a rather central thread like eternal generation is going to disrupt many other things in the fabric of the Christian faith that we are rightly concerned to, to make sure remain in place for the good of the church and the good of the church's yeah. confession. And not only for you know maybe intellectual and theological reasons per se. Yeah. Well, I'm afraid we have to wrap things up for today, but I don't want to do so without asking you two questions as we wrap up. Number one, are you doing any further work on this question that we might look forward to in the future or anything related to it? Or have you exhausted your efforts on eternal generation for the time being, at least?
2: Uh, No, I'm I'm not exhausted. There's a (laughs) lot more to say. I am actually working on a book on Uh, on the specific topic of only begotten, Mm -hmm. which is just one small sub point under this broader doctrine of eternal generation. Although it is also very important because, you know, as we saw with Dr. Grudem, it was understanding that lexical issue that helped him to be more open to the broader theological shift. So it's very important, but I, I want to lay out more fully all of the lexical issues behind that and my concern basically is you know this idea that i mentioned before which is the english versions that we now have most of them anyway uh, although i have to acknowledge that the legacy standard bible has it just recently came out the new testament was recently published they have retained only begotten which i'm thankful for but uh, most english versions have created this problem where the english bible is out of sync with the creed The creed says only begotten, but the Bible says only. And so how can we, there seems to be a gap there between the creed and our Bibles. And so I want to write a book that is going to make the case to argue for very careful lexical, lexicographical study to defend the traditional translation. Fantastic. We look forward to that.
1: And more Mm -hmm. imminently, I guess uh, we can look forward to your Greystone micro course. And I want to ask you what we can look forward to in this micro course, what you're planning to do with the um, six weeks that uh, we have lined up for your hour and a half to two hour um, presentation and discussion times on this question. Let me just tell our audience this Greystone micro course is called The Eternal Generation of the Sun in Scripture and Theology. It's a six-week series meeting once a week, and it's online only, which also means anyone in the world can can join these sessions. However, the first one does start on April 14th, so that's not very far off at all. I would strongly encourage anyone who's interested to, to sign up soon to make sure you can get in. But the meetings will be from two o'clock to four o'clock in the afternoon Eastern Standard Time from two o'clock for each of the six meetings, which start April 14th and continue April 21st, 28th, and then May 5th, 12th, and 19th. The description of this particular event is really quite exciting. The doctrine of the eternal generation of the sun is a central element of the classical doctrine of the Trinity, However, due to the Enlightenment rejection of medieval ontology, historical critical exegesis, and heterodox views of eternity and time, the doctrine was cast aside by modernist theologians as so much metaphysical speculation. Even among otherwise conservative Protestants, confidence in the doctrine has significantly eroded as historicizing currents washed ashore. This course will attempt to retrieve the doctrine of eternal generation for today, by considering, first, its scriptural basis, second, its development in the history of theology, and thirdly, its contemporary retrieval versus eternal functional subordination, or EFS, that topic we were just um, speaking about moments ago, starting April 14th. And Dr. Irons, could you tell us a little bit more about what we can look
2: forward to in these six sessions? Yeah, so I'm really looking forward to to this micro course it's going to be a lot of fun to dig into these issues so i'm going to spend the first two or three weeks just on the exegetical foundation and basis for eternal generation although that will also incorporate some of the fourth century church fathers because we want to sort of retrace their footsteps how did they see the doctrine in scripture Mm. so that'll be the first two or three weeks and then I want to get into more of the, how did this doctrine develop through, you know, the middle ages and in the, into the, uh, the reformation period. Maybe talk a little bit about Calvin's teaching on the sonship of Christ and some of the, the ways in which reformed theology has been generally favorable towards the doctrine, but there's also been some elements in reformed theology that have laid some seeds for doubt and then i especially want to talk about what i mentioned in that in that description there about the historicizing uh, currents and and how this whole problem that happens with with modern theology especially you see it in bart but it's also many others Rahner and so on of collapsing eternity in time mm. where the imminent trinity and the economic trinity are just collapsed into one And there's no distinction between the pre-incarnate Logos, Osarkos, and the incarnate Christ. That has a huge role to play in all of this, in creating doubt about this doctrine. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, and then lastly, we will just do one session on eternal functional subordination and providing a critique of that. So. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Uh, this is a great opportunity for Greystone and for our uh, for our global network of uh, students and of clergy and other thoughtful Christians uh, who are uh, eager to continue growing in grace and also in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great opportunity for that. And I'm so grateful for your willingness to lead us uh, in this study, yeah. uh, which starts quite soon. Thank you for your generosity and and for your time today, Dr. Irons. It's been great to have you on Greystone Conversations.
2: Well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to do the micro course and for this
0: podcast today. Thank you for listening to this episode of Greystone Conversations. Remember that Greystone members enjoy access to the entire growing library of Greystone lectures and events, including full course modules at greystoneconnect.org. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe spread the word and consider supporting this podcast with the modest donation of just one dollar. Until next time, thank you for your support and for spending your time with us at Graystone.